Hey there all you cool cats and kittens and welcome back to another episode of Best in Sass, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. Today, super excited to have Andrew Edinger on the. On, actually, whoa, do I is that did I pronounce your name right? Yeah, Edinger. Edinger. Yep, all good. Andrew. Okay, we'll start over. <laughs> all right, today I'm really excited to have uh, Andrew Edinger on the call. Um, he grew revenue at Pivotal from basically zero to in excess of 500 million and is now the uh, chief revenue officer at Big ID, in addition to being an advisor and uh, board member LP across a variety of companies and funds. So, Andrew, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's dive right in. You've had a ton of amazing experience. I'm sure we could pick a ton of different like stories to dive into. But I'm curious, you know, one of the things that you really tout a lot is is this flexibility and mindset and not getting stuck in your ways. And it's kind of interesting because this show is all about what are the patterns and playbooks that revenue leaders and have observed over the course of their career and they roll out. But it's almost at odds with that, with that idea, um, which isn't to say that playbooks are, are wrong, but I love that you are out there saying, hey, these things go stale and you need to always have an open mindset. So like, let's talk about kind of how you even developed that way of thinking during the beginnings of your career. Yeah, sure. Playbooks are a lot like rules. I think they're meant to be broken, right? Uh, they got a time, they got a place, and uh, they're appropriate, but uh, sometimes they got a break. Uh, and, you know, look, I think, you know, as you start to progress in your career, and I'm, you know, by no means, you know, uh, an expert or at the end of my career, you start to realize that there are some mistakes that you make that are very classical and prototypical that people tell you and warn you about. And you sort of say to yourself, I would never happen to me. Like, no way would I be that over-controlling, high-performing sales professional that would then go to manage and scale a team and do it all my way or the highway and run it and control it uh, and be overbearing and overpowerful. That would never happen. But it invariably happens to, you know, uh, more percent than people want to admit. And, you know, look, it happened to me early on in my career. And I like to say, look, there's no problem with making mistakes. It's the mistakes that you can't self-identify and correct and learn and apply the lessons learned as you go forward. So it's been a real opportunity for me uh, to ensure, you know, when that happened early, it kind of came down to one fundamental thing. And it's having, uh, you know, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I think that fixed mindset, which is what you were alluding to in some of the discussions I've had, is oftentimes what really derail people from scaling to the next evolution of growth, whether it's zero to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 100, and so on. So, I mean, it, it may sound super obvious, uh, and it, it could be, but if you're one of those people out there and you're in a fixed mindset, it's probably a lot harder to identify like to raise your hand even to yourself and say, oh shit, I'm, I'm in a fixed mindset. How would you, like if there, if there are listeners out there who might be in that spot, how could they self-identify? Like, are there any, are there any signals they should be looking for to, to evaluate? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I think there's no easy way to answer it. And so I'll provide uh, a little bit of color. I think the first thing, which is just hard because it's in DNA, is self-awareness, self-reflection, uh, and deep introspection of where you're at today and where you ultimately want to go with the organization that you're running and trying to be out ahead of that and realizing that regardless of where you're at and regardless of where you want to go, things have to change, right? Just by definition. And, you know, uh, so that, that's hard for a lot of people though, right? Because that's sort of in the DNA that's in your bones. So, you know, let's say that that's not possible because you don't have that. Uh, to me, you know, go to market and it's not even selling like go to market is a team sport and you need to surround yourself with other like minded individuals that counterbalance you that are not necessarily just like you. And I, you know, kind of tried to do that below me where you try to hire people for diversity of thought. Uh, obviously, diversity in general is 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 an amazing uh, thing to adhere to, but at least diversity in thought uh, below you, which. Uh, you then provide that safe environment to collaborate and share ideas and be vulnerable. And then above you and around you, you have to also surround yourself with marketing and sales enablement uh, and founders and board members and, you know, the subject matter experts and really develop uh, a cadence together where you're always sharing thoughts, ideas and measuring what you're learning in the marketplace together so that you're constantly iterating, measure it, test out really small slivers of that along the way. And then you're always on this agile approach towards scaling with science and also tight feedback loops with a trusted peer group around you. And to the extent that you can be successful against executing at that will then enable you to your point earlier to not fall into those traps because there will be way too many alarms that will sound along the way and more importantly, you'll already be setting up yourself in the de facto standard that you're always going to be iterating and changing. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. So you mentioned something a second ago, scaling with science. Can you walk us through what that means to you? Yeah, sure. So I think, uh, you know, when you start to look at, uh, you know, scaling, again, regardless of, you know, uh, where you're at, and let's just assume for purposes of this answer and discussion that there is go-to-market fit, right? Customers have shown uh, propensity to want to engage, there is demand, uh, and they voted with their wallets. Now you're starting to say, hey, look, how do I take that product market fit, right? Uh, take the signals from some go-to-market fit and apply that so that it could be repeatable, consistent, measurable, and scalable. And what that means is you reverse engineer right, the sales process to understand the outcomes that the customers would get, the minimum time to their first value once they've deployed your product, which hopefully is within 30 days, but let's just even say like in the enterprise side, it's 90 days, and then reverse engineer back to your first contact with them. And what would you do every step along the way to ensure that you are taking them down that path which they'd achieve those outcomes? And if you're doing that, and measuring that, A, you could course correct, and B, you know that you're on the right course for them to enjoy the benefits that you are promising them that they will realize. And therefore, you're able to be very prescriptive to your go-to-market engine on where you might be stuck, where you might need to advance, and where you're doing well. Got it. Okay, so now I want to back us up to Pivotal. I mean, zero to 500 is a, is a crazy amount of growth. And obviously, there are categories 
kind of sprints, revenue sprints within that that are distinct uh, with their own set of challenges. So if you could take us through maybe the first five major revenue sprints, like A, what are those, you know, as far as like, is it one to 10, 10 to 20? What, is, what do those look like? And then maybe share one of the biggest learnings from each of those sprints. And it could either be like a learning or something that went wrong that you grew from. What would those be? Yeah, a really good question. Uh, I think the first one is obviously when you're at zero is just proving that someone would actually pay for your product. And, uh, you know, oftentimes when you're at that stage, there are some rough edges that you never know uh, how rough they might be depending on the use case that your first set of customers want to apply, at least in the platform business that we were in. And so for us, it was really just about demonstrating that there was this market in the enterprise for companies that realized they could have an inherent advantage in being able to accelerate through the software development lifecycle at a speed that would rival Google, Facebook, and the other consumer internet giants. And, you know, back in 2013 and 14, that wasn't that crazy of a thought. But when you sit here today in 2020, it's kind of like air and water. And so <laughs> it really first was just trying to prove out that people thought software was a core competency that you should own as a Fortune 500 or Global 2000. And so it was like, give us any workload that we could prove this out. And, you know, you found four or five different workloads, which were not the four or five workloads that we originally intended uh, to set out to prove. So positive, we proved it. Negative, it wasn't what we expected. So then, right, the pivot was like, okay, to now go to the next set of customers that would take us from 10 to 25 or 50, what would that look like? And were there swim lanes in those workloads that we could use to go prove and at that point, the market started to mature. The clouds like you know Amazon and Azure started to become increasingly more relevant. There were more options out there. And we really had to now take a much more architecture-first approach, get much more hands-on with technical selling, technical evangelism, and doing deep workshops that enabled companies on our dime to see the power of what the outcomes could achieve to them before we even started. And so that was a radical shift that we didn't really anticipate because we figured everyone would want to adopt to that modern software development paradigm. But it turns out that we had to actually go and instrument the front part of that sales process uh, an engagement model to get very deep and actually show them with hands on keyboard. So I would say those were two of the the, the early ones, uh, you know, and then and then and then it started to kind of scale from there. Got it. Okay. So you know you have all of this experience, you have all of, you know this, these great frameworks for you know staying nimble with your mindset and and constantly looking for the next opportunity. So now you're uh, the chief revenue officer at. Um, at Big ID, like what what sparked the inspiration to go to Big Big ID, and what are the challenges you're trying to solve there today? Yeah, thanks. Good question. Big ID was just perfectly situated in the middle of three very significant secular trends that had massive momentum: privacy, security, and data. And as I was looking in the marketplace, it became apparent that the uh, data obviously was going to drive and fuel a lot of the innovation going forward. 
uh, in all sorts of companies. That was already table stakes. But doing it in a way in which uh, people, consumers, customers uh, felt like their privacy was not being violated. And in fact, uh, the processes were engineered to be privacy aware to start with, which rode the coattails of some of the regulations from California and uh, the EU and GDPR and CCPA. Uh, really was at the forefront. And organizations now were really starting to think about privacy as a first-class citizen and hiring chief privacy officers. And so it became one distinct pillar that was really significant. And then it dovetailed into security, which oftentimes were the folks that had to operationalize the things that the privacy professionals would put in place to make sure that the policies were adhered to. But then all of a sudden, the security professionals were like, well, once we understand all of this data, we need to make sure that we know where it is and that when it changes, why it changed and who has access to that data and how do we find that data that's in motion, that's in rest, that's in file systems, that's in structured databases and unstructured uh, ways and bring all that all together in a very meaningful way so that we could make sure that the security around all of that data is in place in general let alone ensuring that personal information or PII are handled in very distinct ways. And then lastly, it's like once you understand all that about your data, there's new and interesting ways to derive economic value from that in ways that wasn't possible before. And as you start to look at the machine learning engineers out there and how the enterprises are trying to apply that into AI production systems, the long pole in the tent is finding the data and getting access to it. And because what I just described inherently was surfacing all of that and correlating it together and driving insights, it served as this ramp and this accelerant for people to now take that relevant information and do far more meaningful things with it because they could get access to it. So when you bring all that together in a platform that allowed people to surface all of those three personas and then develop applications on top of that to instrument the workflows into production processes, it was an opportunity couldn't pass down. Totally. Love it. So what I'm curious, like you've had, you, you, you continue to have an amazing career. It continues to ramp. What keeps you fired up personally? The love of the game, right? I have a passion for taking leading edge and cutting technology and delivering business outcomes uh, to customers. There is no, the, 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 the sale isn't actually uh, what gets me excited. It is actually having customers that are so happy about the outcomes you're delivering that they want to talk about the value and the benefit that they're getting. And just seeing people progress through that life cycle just brings me great passion. And, you know, there are, Obviously, are you know a myriad of horror stories of legacy software implementations inside of the enterprise, and I just never wanted to be that, and I went the real opposite way, which comes with more risk because you're on the cutting edge, and by definition, that's a startup. But helping to then grow those companies and see the value and and have the customers really feel that connective tissue back to you know, the thesis that the company was created on really is just exciting. And it, it's, it's what my passion's about. So speaking of this passion, I know that you, you bring this to a lot of companies that you advise. I'm curious, are there, are there any companies maybe in the last year or two who you've worked with that broke through, had like a major breakthrough in their go-to-market 
Um, if you wanted to shout out to a couple of those examples and, and share kind of what that big breakthrough moment was for each of those companies. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. I think, you know, oftentimes, uh, it depends on the stage, but oftentimes you do have absolutely brilliant technical founders that sometimes just need help navigating the turbulent waters of the enterprise, right? And it can be, uh, you know, very demanding, very intimidating, and uh, a tough thing to get through if you don't have the experience there. And so for me, it really was just about instilling the level of confidence and a sounding board to a lot of those founders to understand how to approach those engagements, what the expectations of those enterprises are and were, and how you could best align your value proposition against those such that they want to engage with you. And the breakthrough moments really happen when uh, you know they start to see those things bear fruit. They start to see the engagements pick up. And on the flip side, it was then really how do you start to build a demand engine leveraging some of the modern techniques around account-based marketing and some of the intent data and signals that are out there and building those two things together so that your go-to-market engine is instrumented from the early days to be able to take the signal in the market and apply it towards your process and start to scale so that when you're hiring reps, you're already able to show them where there is intent in the marketplace that they can go and execute against. And so for me, applying all those learnings, which again, were learnings for me, I didn't have that day one to some of the founders that don't necessarily have that in their DNA. They've got obviously amazing other, uh, you know, attributes has just been, you know, really rewarding. So who are some of the people in, in your own life that have either been you know, mentors or folks who even peers that you look up to or, or admire their work? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think on the mentorship side, uh, you know, Bill Cook and Scott Yara have been uh, just sort of at the forefront. Scott was the co-founder of Green Plum, which is where I started in 2010 and that started the pivotal journey and uh, just an amazing entrepreneur and product vision. Uh, Bill Cook was CEO there and 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 was uh, president and COO of Pivotal, who I reported to for 10 years. Uh, it was just absolutely amazing. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Joe Otto uh, was running sales there early on for me as well as now CEO of Astronomer. has uh, just been an amazing uh, influence in my life on uh, how to approach the enterprise world. And then in the, you know, industry, you know, Mark Roberge and, uh, you know, his book, uh, and I've gotten the opportunity to know Mark really well since that book, but I just blindly found the book and just became a fan on that science of scaling uh, every time I talk to Mark, it's like three pages of notes. And then I think the last one, as you heard me mention demand gen a little bit and kind of the modern approach to sales has uh, emphatically been Jill Rowley, uh, who's been a dear friend for you know seven or eight years and uh, who I admire greatly and uh, pushes me to be better uh, every single day, that, that entire collection. And I'm just fortunate to uh, you know have acquaintances with all of them. Well, Andrew, I, I absolutely love the energy that you bring to just every conversation we've had. And certainly this one, I think the audience is going to um, really take a lot away from this. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. 